Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. It's my pleasure to reintroduce, because he's been here before for us, uh, Richard Schwartz, local historian. And let me explain to you a little bit about his background on this particular part of his abilities. He's an archaeological historical consultant. He was a consultant to Garcia and Associates, the firm hired by the city of Berkeley to study the West Berkeley Shell Mound. He's recorded with the State of California records of about 200 Native American archaeological sites in the Bay Area, the vast majority of which were previously unknown. He's been honored as the pioneer of Berkeley archaeology by UC Berkeley archaeology chairman Kent Lightfoot. He was hired by Archaeotech to contribute his research in site and burial knowledge of ALA 307, the West Berkeley site and Shell Mound. And he wrote The Circle of Stones, an investigation into the Circle of Stones in Stampeded Valley, Sierra County, California, about a 65-foot mysterious artifact shortly after taking a year off to study the site. He was informed of it while fighting forest fires for the United States Forest Service. Does that mean if we actually conquer the forest fires uh, in California that we'll, we'll not be able to find more sites? I hope not. Okay. So, Richard Schwartz, coming back to the Commonwealth Club again. Thank you very much, Richard. Okay. Thanks, George. So tonight, together, we're going to take a walk around the bay, stopping at certain interesting sites, and hopefully we will learn that there is so much more Native American presence all around us that we had no idea. And through some of what they've left, they're still here, but we're talking about the ancient people. Um, we'll get to meet them in, in a very profound way. We'll start, and we're going to jump around in time from, say, 10,000 years ago to almost the present. I want to start by saying we know so very little of the culture and history of the native peoples. Um, one of the reasons is this. 10,000 years ago, when the Ice Age ended, the shoreline was at the Fairlawn Islands. What we call the Bay was a beautiful extension of the Sacramento River Valley. The oldest sites are probably miles out in the ocean, under the bay, and technology has not risen yet to find them. So what we know of is simply what we've bumped into or was so obvious that we couldn't help to meet them. This will not be a complete study of Native American culture, it couldn't be in this period of time, nor would I accept the job if I was asked to do that. But hopefully by sampling it, you will walk away thinking, I had no idea. Um, first of all, let, let's start with this very unique opportunity of the Spanish showing up in 1769. And by 1775, um, the ship um, San Carlos was mapping the depths of the bay. And this created an incredible chance for both the Spanish culture and the Native American cultures, of which there were many different ones, to meet. And I want to describe some of these meetings real quickly because I think what they show is, is pretty astounding and clarifying. So the San Carlos is, is anchored off of Angel Island, and Father Vincente Santa Maria is on shore, and he's walking around Angel Island, and he comes to this little clearing, and he sees a circle of slim shafts about six feet high. And there was tufts of white feathers near the top and surmounted by black and red feathers, which he clearly saw as a representation of the sun. And then there was a handmade net 
over all this. And, and the, he, he had later seen the Native Americans wearing nets on their hair as well. And at the bottom were arrows with their heads into the sand. And he looked at this and he said, this is the, you know, the heathen adoring some other God or something, but it's got to go because it's the work of the devil. And he threw it all into the fire. Now, keep in mind, the Spanish are visitors in the Native Americans' land. This is the Native American practice, but the father feels compelled that either you practice your religion the way we see it, or we destroy it. Now, I want to compare that to a few years later, um, at the south end of Santa Clara, Pedro Font was coming up to research for a um, harbor in San Francisco Bay. And they're coming up from the south, and they passed the bower that was made so um, uh, Father Palou could say mass during their journey a year prior. And he goes, oh, my God, there it is still. What did the Native Americans do? They didn't knock it down. They put many short poles all the way around it with flowers and, and feathers. And they had one large post in the middle, which they covered in white feathers and um, tied a, a net again around it. On some of the smaller posts, there were, we'll just call it, um, Tamales with grass seed, tamales with acorns. Um, one pole had many arrows in it. And um, what what Font saw was that not only did the Native Americans leave the Spanish monument, but they adorned it and, I'll use an odd word, christened it uh, with their own culture. What what this and many other stories show is the Native American belief was, first of all, the Spanish came in in floating villages. No, It was like men on flying saucers. Um, the Spanish came in with rigging on their ships. You know, the Native Americans, one of a very important uh, task is making twine. And now they're seeing rigging on the ships and they're, and they saw domesticated animals. Even more astounding, they saw men riding this gigantic animal that we call a horse. And there's plenty of accounts where the Native Americans would walk around the horse and and talk to it and sign to it. And they it was clear that they considered it the same as a man, uh, which is fair. And... One of the fathers said, what do you think? They they wanted to impress. And one of the native men said, uh, he thought that the men on top of the horse were the sons of the horse. Pretty nice. Um, the, the, the other thing I've learned is, I I wound up realizing that it's very disrespectful to say, the Indians thought this, or the Spanish thought that, because there were so many different opinions. Um, some of the Indians were so astounded by this technology that the Spanish brought with them, you know, this floating village. How did they get these animals to be ridden on, these wild animals? Hens, what are they doing? Lambs, we've never seen anything like this. Um and one time off the co- off the east coast, the Contra Costa um, of the bay, there, the, the ship was anchored and the Native Americans were on the shore and they waved and the Spanish stood there like this. They didn't want to go ashore. The Native Americans got into their Thule boats and came. And in a very disciplined, organized manner, they came up on the boat with the head man, the older gentleman, walked on first, and then 
you know, his, his assistance. And then the young people, no one made a sound. They filed very disciplined. When the head man said, sit down, they all sat down. Nobody spoke, but the head man. And he offered a speech. Now the Spanish didn't understand it, but it was clear that this was an official journey. It was an official welcoming. They were all dressed accordingly in their best. And, um, Everyone was very impressed with this. So then one of the fathers on the ship asked them to kiss the cross. And they happily kissed the cross. Because as far as they were concerned, in their belief system, power comes from the other world. And if you're really good at soccer or basket making or making boats, that meant to them that this other world, the spirit world, gave you that power to do that. So they felt if if the Spanish had these incredible powers, then it was the same spirit world that was giving them the powers that gave them their powers. So they had no problem allowing the Spanish to join the system because they already had, as far as the Indians was concerned. So here you have an internal system with outer differences that the Indians didn't think anything of. The Spanish, on the other hand, were the opposite. They preached that God loves everybody, but they would kill you if you, they, if you didn't practice it the way they demanded. So this was the dilemma. But the hope and promise of these early meetings could make you cry because the priest came out and he sang, one of the songs. Now, songs to Indians are extremely important. So the father sang this song and he looks up and the Indians are crying. They're crying, which made the priest cry. And he was so grateful. Now, naturally, he thought they want to convert. Then the Indian group took out their clappers and they sang their song. Oh, by the way, as soon as he was done, the head man looked at all his people nodded his head. The Indians sang this exact song, verse for verse, word for word, back to the priest. So then they get out their clappers and they sing one of their important songs, you know, and hand the the, the clapper to the priest. Oh, he couldn't do that. I mean, one one father did, uh, to his credit. But I'm I'm just bringing this up now, early on, because. These meeting the Spanish and the Spanish were incredible record keepers. Give us these glimpses that we would have never had otherwise. Um, so um, one time they came back the next day after a really good visit. And, you know, the, the Spanish were asking them their names. They were telling them their names. So when they came back the next day, they remembered everybody's name. And the father took out his pencil and paper and he had written down the names of the Indians that were there the day before who were there again. And he pointed at the guy and he looked at his paper and he stated his name. And the Indian was like, this was like, could barely comprehend, but it was, it was deliciously wonderful. And they smiled and they laughed and they came up and looked at their names on the paper and, you know, read it again. And he stated their names and they were like, oh my God. So, you know, the potential for incredible meetings of two almost diametrically opposed type cultures, an open one and a dominant one, um, soon fell apart. Um, w- one other story real quickly I want to tell was years later, General Vallejo, who Vallejo is named after the city, uh, was outside and it was the winter. It was freezing cold. He was all bundled up. He had a hat and a big coat. <clears throat> and the Native Americans were incredible stalkers. They could just show up and you would have never known they were coming. The next thing Vallejo knows is there's this Native American whom he knows and, and the guy's naked. Vallejo goes, man, aren't you cold? And the Indian walks around them a couple times, looks them over and stares Vallejo politely but firmly back in the face and says, General, 
is your face cold? Leo goes, no. He says, then consider me all face. <laughs> so these are the people we're dealing with. Um, and I, I wanted to take the opportunity to at least tell you a few of these stories so you would meet them in a sense. Um, this is the Presidio. Um, now, <clears throat> the Spanish brought with them cattle, horses, sheep. And as you know, sheep pull the plants out to eat them, roots and all, destroys them. The number of cattle and horses on the land totaled the Native Americans' crops. Now, prior to the Spanish coming, the Indian women were in charge of burning. And they would burn at very specific times, very specific area for very specific reasons. You didn't want to, you, you know, you, your land was from drainage to drainage. So you wanted to keep the deer near your village so you would have something to eat. And the nearer to their, your village they were, the easier it would be for you. So the women would burn certain areas near their villages, which would encourage the greens for the deer. Or they would burn this other area at a very specific time so the shoots for their baskets would come out straighter. Or there were too many fleas and bugs and they would burn that area. Um, or to encourage the wildflower growth, to change the acid pH of the soil, the fire will neutralize it and encourage growth for the seed crop. So when the Spanish first showed up, some of their records say, this looks so verdant. It all, it, it looks like it's, uh, uh, all crops, but there's no plow marks. Well, it was all crops. They just didn't use plows. They would just broadcast various groups of seeds. So, um, uh, the governor was so, and it was Governor Fahis at this point, uh, was so frightened by the fires he saw, he was afraid they were going to burn the whole area down. So he banned it. And I used to think when I first came to this area, I thought, oh my God, I could see what this place was like. And this is the time of the biggest change I've ever seen of changing the land and just covering it, just covering it with asphalt and concrete and people. Until I learned about this and I realized that that was the time of the biggest ecological change because it eliminated an entire world, entire species that were thriving, um, and a way of life, uh, an entire way of life, uh, almost. Um, so I'm showing you this because I want you to know that even when we show things like early San Francisco, it's not the real place. It's after the Spanish cattle were there and the sheep and the horses and the Indians were banned from burning. Um, and often for whatever reason, and there were multiple reasons and the teenagers were most vulnerable, just like they are now to new ideas being impressed. Um, they went to the missions and sometimes they realized, Oh my God, this is a big mistake. I miss my home so much. Imagine your family being in the same spot for thousands of years. And imagine that every rock had a name. And every view and canyon had a name. And every bend in the trail had a spirit. And when you walked on your land, you weren't just walking. You were following respect. Because if you didn't, you'd be in trouble. You had to, if you walked by this big boulder, which you knew had certain powers, you had to make sure it was feeling okay. I remember hearing a story of uh, a native woman was walking on a trail and she kicked a little stone. Well, she ran after it and put it back exactly where she found it. Um, there's a, there's a concept called pua, which is power. And this is, this is a broad brush concept and, and, um, definition, but the Native American trails were said to follow Pua, not a straight, not necessarily a straight line. Think about that difference of concept between that culture and ours and what meant something. You know, expedience or doing right. 
and they both have their place. But think about the difference and people who dedicated their lives to that. And there were times where there was so much punishment at the missions, being whipped, being put in stockade for days and whipped. Um, what was your crime? You tried to go home and you didn't want to come back. Once you were baptized, your life was not yours anymore. So there was a point where the runaways got so bad, the Spanish had to interview them. What's going on? What's the matter? And there was this famous thing called the three muchos. Too much work. Too much punishment. Too much hunger. That's why they left. But then the Spanish came after them. So I want to I want to just go over a few things. And Perry, if you have something to add, Perry's a famous uh, Native American activist. Um, I'm going I'm going to mention some sites in a, in a few slides. In a few slides. Um, now, this is this is like a 130 year old photograph. It's a horrible photograph, but it's better than nothing. I'm showing it to you because I want you to know there were rock walls, most likely built by Native Americans, in San Francisco. This one was on Mount Sutro, and it was said to go for 300 feet. <coughs> I'm sorry, 300 yards. That's a long ways. And look at the size of these rocks. There were, there were rock walls all around the Bay Area. So clearly these are massive undertakings, extreme labor. Um, they had to understand how to move these objects, heavy objects, um, because obviously it meant something to them. Um, I go through old newspapers. That's one of the many ways I found sites. And I saw this ad, and you can see there's a mound there. And it looks about the right size to be a real show mound. And anytime I see the word mound, my I perk right up. So I called my cousin Roberta, who's sitting right there, and I said, we have an excursion this weekend. And, and we went there. And uh, I reported back to the UC Berkeley, uh, begging them to take, you know, get permission to take corings because we did find evidence of shell. Um, nobody's ever studied it. We don't know if they've taken some of it down, but it's still there. So I'm going to tell you just because we're in San Francisco, I have records from the 1850s and these men who were writing were very interested in the show mounds that they saw 1850s way before there was such a thing as an anthropologist. There were mounds at the Petrero. There were bones in them. There was one at mission Bay dog patch. There's one at Hunter's point. There's another, they said further up the road, whatever that means you would know better than I. Um, in the 1870s, a burial ground was discovered on one of the first houses built in San Francisco on Russian Hill. It's funny how many times you come upon where the next culture builds right where the native culture was. Um, on Harrison, uh, men were working utility work and they came upon burials and skulls and utensils and other relics and such. Um, a big, big site was at the 1915 Expo. Um, there was a 300 by 300 foot shell mound. Uh, it had bone. It had artifacts. Um, and the, and the most common bones were seal, porpoise, and whale. So clearly this was, a, you know, a, 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 an, a, a fishing village. Um, there was no real time to study it because the dredger came and covered it all up for the 1915 exposition. Per, do you want to vaguely add any? I, I don't know. Oh. The same shell mound, which would be in between the Chrissy Field shell mound and what's now the Palace of Fine Arts, um, the San Francisco Public Library. I can't remember the name of the amusement area, uh, the fellow who had it, but uh, there is... Wood, Woodward's? 
that, that may be it. There's in the database it actually has a map and it says Indian Mound, but it's a little bit to the west of the, what's now the Palace of Fine Arts, but it's also east of the Chrissy Field Shell Mound. And 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 then there's a, a mound by um, the Cliff House. You know, not not in that general vicinity. So I'm hoping you get the message. And this is just what was quickly destroyed. I, I'm sure there's ten times that. But just know that it's all around you. Um, now let's take a little trip to Marin. We all know about Sir Francis Drake, 1579, and he damages his boat and he has to He's kind of beached at Drake's Bay for repairs. He must have thought, wow, what a coincidence. This bay is named after me. It's like, <laughs> must be fate. So they were there for quite some time. And while they were there, one dawn, they went up to see this Miwok village. And they didn't know what to expect. And a number of men went together. And when they got there, the entire village was up in a circle and they were clearly helping the sunrise together. And they considered it, that was their duty every day, every day. Why? Because, and this is once again generalized, um, they believed in three worlds. There was the upper world, where animals could talk, there's no time, and benevolent spirits had a whole lot of power. Then there's the middle world. Well, that's where we live. And then there's the lower world. Those guys are malevolent, and they're powerful too. Because we live in this middle world, it is our responsibility in nature to make sure that all three levels, all three worlds are balanced so the world can continue. And they took it very, very seriously and did a damn good job because it made it till we, should, we got here. The other thing they found was in, when they first got there, the people would come up to them and stare at their face and just look at them from all angles with the, with the greatest intensity. And what they finally realized was they thought that the sailors were actually their own ancestors who had come from the dead. There was a, there was a legend this would happen. And they were trying, are you my aunt? You know, <laughs> you kind of look like her. And, but the scary thing was at some point, the women often started scratching at their faces till they were like pulling off the skin and bleeding. And this like really scared the sailors. I can't tell you what they were doing, but it was it, it obviously was nothing casual. Um, and it was part of their belief system. The, the thought of having your ancestors come back must have been both incredible and the most frightening thing they ever experienced. Um, and the, and the park service is working on this history. Um, and then in 1595, a few years later, a Spanish ship called San Agustin uh, was grounded in a storm on a sandbar. And it was filled with Chinese porcelain and, and goods from China, trade goods. And the Spanish couldn't save the ship. So they took their longboat, modified it, so they, all the sailors could be saved and they could try and get help. Well, the Miwok saw this, and there are many shards of Chinese porcelain in their shell mounds, and as there are many other things. So what the Park Service archaeologists are trying to figure out, see, because, and this isn't 100% true, but we look at things as things. So this is a chair. This is a podium and my great computer. That's it. That's its life, right? This is my connection, but I don't think of it a real connection. It's just electronic. Well, the Native Americans were in a wholly different frame of mind. 
a material thing had a practical use. And you could take that chard and make something out of it and, and use it practically. But it also had this other quality. This was from when we saw that ship. We have no idea what that was. They never, you know, it's like, and it memorializes an important social event, which is not just a social event. But the third dimension to this, and the most important is, if you really believed that maybe those people were your ancestors, that chard was your conduit to their spirits. So there's all these dimensions to holding something material that mostly we don't have. You may have something from your, you know, high school boyfriend when he took you to the fair and you always kept it and, you know, um, or, or, you know, your first girlfriend when she gave you this ring as a bond and you couldn't ever get rid of it. We, we have a little bit of that, but I don't think we have the cultural structure that they did. Um, so I, I just wanted to, uh, Make that clear. And um, pretty nice view, huh? We're in, we're in Marin County still. And you see a bunch of rocks. Well, do you see anything funny about these rocks? There's the little circles, right? The ovals. Well, these things are called PCNs, pec curvonucleated. And there's two general schools of thought. And it doesn't mean that every time you find one, it's one school or the other. As a matter of fact, there's evidence for both. There's probably a lot more evidence for the first thing I'll tell you, but that doesn't mean that both aren't happening. So there are many renewal responsibilities that the Native Americans had. And there are many, there were fertility issues that they had. And PCNs were never found in village sites. And in interviewing some Native Americans, they often said this represented where a couple would go if they were having problems conceiving. And they would go through this ritual, making this ovaloid figure, which some people say, well, that's a vulva, you know, um, and the powder was used in a very private ceremony between the couple. And I've read scores of variations where they would take this powder and they would make a cross and they would kneel a certain number of times and look a certain way and recite certain songs. And it had to be exact. Um, and there's other portions of the um, ceremony. Um, and the other possibility is that these are what's left after you're trying to make a charm stone. Now, a charm stone may be something you hang from your fishing thing. They didn't just go hunting. They didn't just go fishing. They had to make agreements. They had to fast. There's all these things they had to do. Um, it, it was a serious venture. And so some people think that they popped the charm stone blanks off, and that's just what's left of a quarrying technique. And a friend of mine who's a really good geologist says at some of these sites, they found uh, quartz crystal fragments, that they were using quartz crystals for this. And he believes that at least some of them were for charm stones. But um, it's kind of believed that most of these were for fertility with a couple. So take a look at these and and know that you're probably looking at a number of couples, they have names, they have families, they have lives, friends, relatives, a village, skills, deficits. You never met them, you'll never know their name, and yet you're looking at something they left you. Think about that. That's a pretty incredible chance. It's a pretty incredible connection. So there's a ceremony that's left, and you can see it. And you can know that these were individuals, real people, just by being near this thing. So now we're going to go to Richmond. And this is the Ellis Island site. And as you can see, it's, it's, it's a lot underwater. 
And um, this, this site was 460 feet by 250 feet by 30 feet high. It was between 11 and 17 feet buried in, the, in silt and sand. Um, it sat on gravel. They believe it was inhabited for three to 4,000 years ago constantly. Um, the, the type of shell changes at a certain point. It goes from mostly oysters to mostly clams. Neither disappeared, and the mollusks seem to do okay no matter what. So what the scientists have found to go along with this is that at a certain point, the bay silted over. What would silt over a bay? Rain. If it's a lot of rain, there's a lot of stuff washing, and it's going to wash a lot of fine particles of clay from the hills. That would silt over. You know, and then the tides disperse it, etc. Um, so oysters need gravel. Clams need mud. So the clams wound up pretty much replacing the oysters. And what's fascinating is this happened on so many of the shell mounds around the bay that it's kind of like offers you multiple pieces of evidence of the same thing. Um, here's, and this was excavated by a guy named Nels Nelson, who was the guy who recorded about 425 shell mounds around the Bay Area at the turn of the century. So you can see, and he went in horizontally, you can see the size of this thing. And another thing that's important about this is from, naturally this was about to be developed, and um, they allowed the archaeologists in there, but not for long. So they had to do what, you know, the most they could. And they believed that it was um, occupied to write about contact. And the interesting thing about all that is um, there was another mound nearby called Stege. And actually, Stege consisted of three mounds. And they, they, they both were occupied till about when the Spanish came. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. There's a very interesting event in 1797 where the East Bay Indians just didn't take any guff from the Spanish, whereas many more locations were much more open to what the Spanish wanted, which was them to go to the missions. But even when the, we'll just call them, you know, their, their official name is Neophytes, which is a Native American who's been Christianized. Now, the fathers knew if they sent soldiers over to the East Bay, there's going to be a fight and somebody's going to get killed and probably a lot of people are going to get killed. And then there's an uprising. And then the word gets out to the mission, they could lose it all. And they just were massacred, the missions in the Southwest, not too long before. They were painfully aware what could happen. So they were rightfully paranoid. And so they would send over these neophytes instead to round up all the people that ran away because there were too many people dying. You know, like half the Huchion died. Um, 75% of the Miwok died. Children, couples, and it would happen fast. You can't imagine how frightening that must have been, you know? So also, one of the reasons, and this is just my opinion, I think that the Native Americans didn't mount more they they had the resistance. They didn't have the organization to make political bonds to form a massive um, front against the Spanish. And now here's why I think, um, and this is just my opinion. They live drainage to drainage, uh, perennial drainage to perennial drainage. And like we were talking you grew your whole life there and your parents did and their grandparents and their, you know, back, 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 back. You knew every little asphaltium seep. You knew where the quail were. You knew the names of the deer. 
So your identity was where you lived because you were so bonded to it. You were so intertwined with it because, you know, I hate to use these kind of words, but they really were one with it. And the reason is their lives depended on it. We have covered everything and poisoned everything and destroyed most life around us. It doesn't faze us at all. Here come the oranges from Florida. Here comes the gas from Saudi Arabia. You know, here comes your beef from Chicago. Who can you know, it doesn't matter to our survival that we destroyed everything. It did to them. They wouldn't have survived. So they had a relationship. And when you have a relationship, that's what makes it magic. And I totally lost the train of thought of why I originally said, uh, basically they send the neophytes over and the East Bay tribes were like, no, you, you've betrayed us. And, and they really tried forcing, uh, the runaways to come with them. And this did not sit well with the East Bay Huchion because they were very clear. They didn't want anything to do with the mission. And they started firing at, at, at these neophytes and the neophytes got away, not by much. Um, and it took them a long time because there was a storm and their Thule boats came apart and they had to get beached again and run to some other village who took Thule out of their houses to enable them to repair their boats to get home. When they got home, the military was peeved. The governor was peeved. The fathers were peeved. And they sent a military expedition to punish these people and to get those damn runaways. That's what they were, runaways. Um, and there was this huge confrontation, bad. And um, the Spanish attacked. And, and, and they, if, if there was a family in, in this Thule house and they wouldn't come out, they set it afire thinking they would come out. They didn't come out. They weren't about to. So this was kind of like a major turning point. And it was so horrifying that many of the, many of the uh, Huchion at that point gave up and they went to the missions. So, and abandoned their villages. Number one, you need a minimum number of people. Imagine if in your town, there was nobody working at the 7-Eleven. There's nobody working at the gas station. There's no checkers at Safeway. The doors are locked. Um, hey, there's still somebody at the stationary place. And, you know, but I can't get in my car because nobody has any gas anymore. Things start to fall apart. So there weren't enough people to keep the whole thing going. And th- couple this with a drought and a crop failure. How long can you go without food? The Spanish have already destroyed your, your, your crops with what crops you had with the cattle and the horses. It was a horrible, horrible time. And the Spanish records say that that's when all these East Bay people came to the missions for a while. Uh, you know, before the measles outbreak of 1806, which killed most of them. Um, so the archaeologists think that that's what might have caused these shell mounds in the East Bay to be abandoned. Fascinating story. Here's another one, a shot of that. But there's mortars all over the hills. They're in backyards. Um, they're in front yards. They're hidden. They're in bushes. They're all over the place. This is in San Pablo. Uh, you can see the mound. Um, in San Pablo, there was a mound that they called maybe the biggest in the country and the most important because it was never disturbed. And right by it was a burial of a, of a very important person. And there was like 30 feet of elk antlers in a circle around this guy and like extraordinary grave goods. Clearly a very important man. And... Um, once again, there was about to be an apartment house r- right there and they really didn't have the time to examine it. And, um, most of it was lost. They thought it was about 4,500 years old 
constantly uh, occupied. And the quartz crystals there were the biggest they had seen in the Bay Area. And usually a quartz crystal is not for some pedestrian to hold. It's, it's, it's the, it's, it's meant for a shaman. It's meant to have a relationship with the shaman, a specific shaman. Um, and and it, there was proof of trade goods because obsidian doesn't exist around here. You had to get it in trade. So there was all these things they could have known. It was totally undisturbed. They could have learned something. Um, and but the but the apartment owner said, and this will sound really familiar, especially to you, Chris. I, I I'm interested too. I would really love to help, but I have a construction contract that they have to they have to start because they have to be done by such and such a date. And Anybody want to guess what the name of the construction company was? What's that? Thunderbird Construction. So, irony of ironies. Um, now we're moving to El Cerrito. You see that groove in the rock? A friend named Randy Granlin spent a lot of his life studying this. And he would take me out there on the solstice and the equinox. Um, and it turns out that these, the reason this one looks dark is we would go at dusk and those lines would line up where the sun is setting. And all these cupules, a cupule is a, if you took a tennis ball into clay and pressed it maybe a third of the way in roughly and pulled it out, that's a cupule. Now, cupules could look the same and have totally different functions. One, a shaman could put a rabbit skin over it because it's raining too much, that'll stop the rain. Or it's not raining enough, he would pull part of the rabbit skin off and see what happens and adjust it that way. Um, <clears throat> I found a lot of evidence of puberty rituals. Like um, they were given intensive training, and then as a village, the people of about the same age would become adults. And in many, many places, I found that the ceremony ended with each one making a cupule um, as as a ritual. So many of these rocks have hundreds and hundreds of cupules, as you can see. And here's here's another shot. Um, this rock is is an extremely ceremonial rock. It's in your neighborhoods. It's in your world. It's in the Bay Area. This culture still exists. They're calling out to you. They're singing. They're still singing. Um, and, uh, you have to be very careful about these. The, one of the reasons I'll tell you a quick story. Um, there was a archeologist doing a study at this rock in El Cerrito. And the archeologist is in charge of the dig, responsible for the dig. And one person contacted the newspaper without asking her, the archeologist. And the reporter got there and this guy talked to her and, talked to the reporter and uh, never told the archaeologist and the reporter told everybody where this was and within a matter of I don't know, two weeks it got vandalized once you have damaged one of these rocks, there's no getting it back Aloni have told me if the rock is moved, it loses all its power it has to be in its place to have its power this is a mortar with a ring of cupules around it. What it means, I have no idea. These are bonded cupules. See the bar connecting them? What does that mean? Is that a couple? Is that two world? You know, you, you, it's total speculation. Um, I was doing a talk to a bunch of drunks. Uh, I won't mention the name of the club. Uh, older gentlemen. Uh, it wasn't the Commonwealth Club. Uh, and I'm standing up there and I was saying to myself, I, I took a day off from work. I spent, you know, three days preparing the talk and, and they're not even listening. I, I'm talking and they're like laughing and, you know, I'm thinking, what am I doing? And then when it ended, I said, you know, and if anybody has ever found a Native American site, you know, please, and you feel like telling me, I, I really want to know. Um, and this 90-something-year-old man shuffled up to me like this. And he says, so you know about the Indian rock, right? And I said, 
you mean Indian Rock? Because there's a rock called Indian Rock in Berkeley. And he says, oh, no, 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 the Indian Rock. He says, no, I can't say that I have. I never heard of it. And I said, where is it? And he says, well, you know, we used, my father used to take us riding. And when we were done, we would drink lemonade on this rock. And there was all these markings. And I said, can you draw me a little map? And he draws me this little map. I go running out of that place. As I'm running to my car, I'm ripping my tie off, you know, and ripping my jacket off. I jump in my truck. I head right up there. There's this guy's house. I, you know, try and get polite and knock on the door. And um, this kind guy comes out and I tell him why I'm there. And he goes, well, we just had the place landscaped. I don't really think you're going to find anything. I mean, I would have seen it. And the workers would have seen it. But you're welcome to look. And I thought that was really nice of him. So he and I are walking towards the back and we're looking. And his eight-year-old son comes home from school. And he goes, what you doing? And his father says, we're looking for an Indian rock. He goes, oh, I'll take you there. (laughs) So the lesson here is, if you want to know something, ask an eight-year-old kid. They'll know. And I'm not being facetious. They'll know. They've been there. So this rock had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cupules. Um, and it's, although the university came out and photographed it with 3D cameras, um, with the owner's permission, um, it's never been studied. Now, I took my water bottle and I made those, that um, circle around that that PCN, but it also has uh, three cupules within the PCN. Never saw that anywhere. And here's, on the bottom there, is a huge PCN, and it doesn't look like the knob was broken off yet. So you could make a case for either either way. That's going to be a charm stone, or, or the powder was used for fertility, or something else, which we have no idea. Um, if you look up to the top left, you'll see another PCN and this, there's a groove. This, the, the cupules and grooves used to be called pit and groove. And they were five to eight thousand years old. And they, one of the reasons they came up with that is they were always overlaid by more recent things. They were always on the bottom. And, uh, anybody want to guess what this is? Yes, the West Berkeley Shell Mound. Can you see it there at the end? Um, it's, it's another huge one. It was about, they say it was 18 feet high, but here's the problem I have. Um, archaeologists have mind-bogglingly high standards and, and I have nothing but respect for them. But what this also means is they can't consider information that doesn't have a provenance. If a friend um, went to an auction and this guy who lived at the turn of the century used to take his family and walk towards the shell mound every Sunday. And they had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of artifacts. And he bought them because the man had passed away. And he let me borrow them, uh, measure them, weigh them. And my ar- my geologist friend type them, what type of rock it was. Some of these forms were what was missing at the top of the shell mound, why they thought it was abandoned 1,100 years ago. Well, the top would be the easiest part to remove because the citizens took it for filling in low spots, um, fertilizer for their garden, a tennis court, a roadbed. So it seems like these artifacts would fill in a blank. Uh, that it too might have been occupied all the way till the Spanish came. Now, there were probably thousands of, of shell beads. These came from a collection at the Cal Academy of Sciences in San Francisco. Someone had donated them from the West Berkeley Shell Mound. And I, I had called them and I said, well, what year were they donated? And blah, blah. They said, oh, we wish we could tell you, but the records all burned in 1906. So this is as close as we get. If those square beads are thick, they would be really, really old, like 
4,000 years old or something. If they're thin, they might be 350 years old. And um, there were certain styles of these beads at the top, Olivetta, that changed over time. So they can tell you dates because the styles change. Like if you if you find someone and they were wearing bell bottoms, you know you know what years they were wearing them. Um, so, um, and this is what Berkeley looked like before it was developed in North Berkeley. And there were mortars all over the place. And still I go to people's houses. I, I might go to look at a job and here's a matate for, you know, crushing seed and uh, a, a hammer stone and a flat grinding stone um, here's here's a, a metamorphosed sandstone found in North Berkeley on a person's property. Uh, I go to a job and I see dark, greasy soil with white specks. What do you think that is? Yeah, that's what it looks like at, at its most clear. Here's another. Sometimes I look at these slides and I know every pair of shoes I ever bought because <laughs> they're always in the slide. Um there are places where people come and they say, this was down in the canyon. Now, what does this obsidian tell you if someone had a chunk of obsidian this big? Very good. Trade. What else does it tell you? Now, and by the way, scientists can now tell you what mountain it came from. And they could tell, there's a thing called obsidian hydration, which will tell you how long ago it was taken out. Um, but there's one other thing. The fact that this is not from here and the fact it didn't come as arrowheads or spear points meant that manufacturing takes place here. But if that's true, at their sites, wherever that manufacturing took place, you should find a lot of chips. But that's that's what that says. <coughs> trade beads. Spanish, British, they all gave out trade beads to... Um, get in favor with the Indians. Now, the, this is a story I love. I used to have dogs and we would go out for walks, you know, at least twice a day. In the morning before work and after work. And I compulsively would just look. So one day I looked down and I see these beads and I said, Rich, come on. You could see the lady running to her 1940 Packard or something in the rain, and her necklace broke. That's what it looked like. Why Why bother bending down and getting them? And then another voice in me said, take them, stick them in your pocket, we'll deal with it later. So I did. I turned them in, as I do, to the university, and they sent it to their bead guy. Because you can't just be an anthropologist, you have to be a specialist, because there's so much to learn. And three weeks later, they send back this message and they said, um, the identical beads were found in a trash heap in Monterey, carbon dated because there was a carbon next to it, to 1839. Well, guess what? Um, in 18, I think, 41, the Hudson Bay Company, oh, and they said they're Hudson Bay Company beads. Hudson Bay Company opened up a training post on Yerba Buena Island. So it's like a perfect carbon date. Um, then another story, uh, a spear point, And does anybody know what the thing on the right is? <coughs> Did anybody watch Elmer Fudd cartoons when they were kids? Do you remember the rifle he had and it flared at the end? That's a blunderbuss. That's an old Spanish armament. You would not want to get hit with it. It was highly inaccurate, but man, would it do damage. And um, I told you about the incursions that the Spanish military made in the East Bay. Well, I'm driving in Berkeley, and I see this rock that I have to stop and check out. So I don't want to trespass. I knock on the guy's door. And this really nice gentleman, older gentleman, comes out, and I tell him my story. I, I would like to uh, get your permission to climb on that rock and look around. And he says, why? And I tell him, he says, stay right here. And he comes back out and he brings me this. I said, where did you find these? He says, on my property gardening. That ball is a blunderbuss ball. It's extremely rare to find a blunderbuss ball. 
Um, and yet there it was on his property. And, you know, he let me take it home to photograph it. And I promised him I'd bring it back, which I did. His daughter was very nervous about, she didn't know me and I don't blame her. Um, he did get him back, but, uh, there's further proof of what was happening. Now, was Domingo Peralta bear hunting on his, on his land, you know, 30 years later, 40 years later? Can't say for sure. UC Berkeley is filled with sites. <clears throat> One professor said a certain glade on campus was three feet deep in shell. Here's, here's, um, a poll tax. 1896, read what it says. Indians couldn't vote. Indians couldn't testify. This is a shell mound that doesn't exist. I'll show you a better photograph of it. It's the little thing right there, with the house on it. It was at the end of Albany Hill. It was huge. I find cupules all over the parks and the hills at the tops of rocks. It's important which way they're facing, blah, blah, blah. Nobody's ever studied them. Here's what we think is another vulva form, way, way, way up in the middle, and it took like two hours to hike to it. And if you have, and they, they often incorporated the features of the rock, that crack. If you have doubts, well, Rich, you're really kind of getting a little too symbolic. Right around the corner of this rock, a bunch of mortars. So I was down in Wildcat Canyon. You can't tell from the picture much. These are fish. There's fins. There's a back tail. And if you saw it in person, you would know. I keep walking. And uh, the sun was just right so I could see this little rock. And it turns out, by coincidence, I was reading a book on fish rituals in Northern California. And they waited for the Pleiades to come out to send a look out to the creeks. A certain point in the horizon. And... This is a form of the Pleiades. I, I'm convinced. Then here's another cupule and grooves. And when I was mulling this over, it hit me like a ton of bricks. All three petroglyphs faced me as I walked upstream. What goes upstream? Spawning fish. I'm convinced. Rock walls. Um, round top. Uh, which is an old name for a, a mountain in, in Berkeley. Um, many, many, many feet long, pretty big rocks, perpendicular rocks, angled walls off it. Nobody knows why. Here's a photo of one, and what's interesting is the bigger rocks are sometimes on the top. Nobody knows why. Now, I found this at the end. Um, it's either a geologist's hammer, or this could be a, what's called a prayer seat at the end of a rock wall. I can't tell you. Petroglyph. It's called Western Message Style. And you see those two things on the right? Well, some people say it's Ojibwa and Sioux. They had a, a language. And if you look, you see uh, there's the sick symbol and there's the spirit symbol. Well... That's pretty universal stuff, and the six symbol really doesn't look like what's on that rock. I thought it might be brands. I collect cattle brands. Here's one guy's cattle brand lived nearby. Here's another guy's cattle brand. Well, that looks a lot more like it. Basically, um, there used to be a few in Berkeley. Um, now they're in like eight states. And I'm going to just read you what a famous UC Berkeley archaeologist said. Who knows what they mean? We've determined on past occasions that certain modern religious and pseudoscientific cults carry on this type of thing. That's good enough for me. Here's more of the same style. See the bird? See the circle? These are not Indian motifs. Um, here's the sun. Here's a, a, a quartz mortar. Here's pictographs. They're not Pecked, they're painted, pictographs. Here's a spider's web pictograph. The Emeryville Shell Mound, like 38 feet high, the biggest one. And we're almost, almost done. This, this bead was found at a hematite site. Hematite is a red <coughs> rock used in burials. 
And I took it to the university and they sent it to the bead guy and the bead guy was astounded. You know where this bead comes from? China. China. <clears throat> Shell Mound Nurseries. They loved Shell Mounds. Great fertilizer. Um, all right. So we're out of time. Um, God, this, this story is like unbelievable, but, uh, <laughs> and it was never studied. So here's the famous Ishii, uh, dedicating a plaque in honor of the Shell Mounds. And, uh, at the end of this ceremony, uh, what did they do? They played the Star Spangled Banner. He could have sang a song that would have wild people, but they played the Star Spangled Banner. Um, and, and to close this out, cause I could go on, you know, I could hand out sleeping bags and we could do this for, you know, and hostess Twinkies and we could be here for months and the Twinkies wouldn't go bad either. Um, Ishii, the, the, there was an archer professor and he wanted Ishii to take him to his homeland and go, uh, hunting with him. And they're in the woods. They both have their bows and arrows. And Ishii goes, there's a fox behind that tree. And he goes, what are you talking about? How do you know that? He says, the um, squirrel was scolding the fox. They can't see him. And he says to himself, they really are like children. They're just like children. They got minds like children. They take two steps. The fox darts out from the tree. <laughs> yeah, children, huh? Uh you know, and, and this happens a number of times, things like this. And finally, they're walking and, and they hear this jay give this super loud squawking noise. And he goes, that's it, let's go home. And he goes, why? He said, didn't you hear the jay? That jay just told told everybody for miles that were there humans coming. You were not going to see another thing. He knew. Um, he knew, like, many, many words in the quail alphabet. He knew... He knew so much of what they were saying. And there's a guy here named Loner. Loner, where'd you go? Why don't you stand up? Loner is a, a, a big tracker, animal tracker and bird language, uh, interpreter. So there's an effort to get this skill back before it's lost. It's real. The birds really are alerting other people. The animals are telling each other. Their lives depend on it. Loner can, Loner can tell. He can tell you. And there's different calls. Cat, you know, bear, human, uh, weasel. All right. Um, I, I've gone over. I'm not surprised. I'm happy to take questions. If you, if First, you're still awake. Uh, thank you very much. And, uh, I'm, I'm afraid we're, we're 10 minutes over the hour, so there really is no time for the Q&A. However, I, I would like to say, with the way you ended up with the animal talk, I thought it was really great because we are all talking about going to other planets and trying to converse with aliens, and you know, we don't even talk to anybody that's right here on our planet. Uh, so I don't know why. That's, that shows the optimism of the human race, that, that maybe we'll, we'll figure out the other language you know, on the other planet. So thank you very, very much. So ends another event in its 117th year of enlightened discussion at the Commonwealth Club. Okay.